Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. We're here again on a Sunday morning, thankful to be here. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, I know what my week held, and it was a very busy week, and we had we had family in, and friends in, and parties, that we birthday party that we did, and so sometimes the week can be a little bit overwhelming, but we're so thankful to be here together with the, the brethren, with the saints, as we, as we join together in our praise to our Lord. Well, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 again, uh, continuing our time together in Ephesians. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. Praise you that you are good. Lord, we pray that this morning that we would have an even greater understanding of your goodness as we study our salvation, salvation that you have granted us in Christ. We thank you and praise you this morning. May the power of your word be evident. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna, I've titled this sermon, One Times Three Equals Infinity, and I explained last week that that means that one God in three persons equals infinite blessings. In this sermon, we're going to find that God or Paul, that is, wants his readers to comprehend, God also wants them to comprehend, the full breadth and depth of the threefold blessing of believers through the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me read, it would be helpful if I may actually turn to Ephesians chapter 1, but let me read Ephesians chapter 1 here, uh, verses 3 through 6 this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Have you ever been completely drawn in by a television program or a movie or maybe even a novel? Perhaps it was a sci-fi movie, maybe something like Star Wars, where we see the flawed heroes fight against insurmountable odds. You know, movies like this do an incredible job of developing characters and helping us see their strengths and weaknesses. And the world built by the authors of those, of those movies seems to transcend our own mundane existence. So it draws us in. So we find ourselves lost in that experience. Or perhaps you've watched a movie such as Sleepless in Seattle. I think my wife loves that movie. Maybe has seen it a hundred times, you hope that the couple who seems perfect for one another will finally find themselves in each other's embrace. Or possibly, quite possibly, it was a novel such as maybe Les Miserables. You join the author in exploring the proclivity of man to do evil and, and yet do good, which demonstrates that man has been made in the image of God, yet spoiled by sin. Well, beloved, the Bible is like these, but much, 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 much greater. 
The Bible presents its Savior on the grand stage of history, saving His people from complete and certain destruction. The Bible's character development is second to none. Each character is presented as he or or she truly is. It pulls no punches, whether good or bad. It gives us insight into a world that is beyond anything any man could ever imagine. It presents man as he really is, made in the image of God, yet spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. There are times when the Bible is raw in its presentation of man, such as the story in Judges 4 of Jael who drove a tent peg into Sisera's temple, delivering him and the king of Hatzor, or Hatzor into the hands of the Israelites. I don't know if you remember that story or not. There are times when it presents the same man as faithful and unfaithful at the same time in the same story, such as Abraham believing God that he would give him an heir, yet lying by presenting his wife as his sister to save his own skin. The Bible story is captivating above all else, yet many times, this is my point, many times it is difficult to understand. There are doctrines which have we have a difficult time grasping even though they are clearly presented. Therefore, we must take what it teaches by faith and in humility, understanding that God's ways are much, much, much greater than ours. Last week we began to study verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. Specifically, we studied Ephesians 3, which stated, which I stated and believe is the proposition or the main statement of this entire passage. We found that this section then is one long prayer of the triune God for what he has accomplished in saving, in saving us. Now, as this passage begins to unfold, we will see that Paul gives us insight into the Trinitarian communication which occurred before the foundation of the world. You know, we get to be a fly on the wall, so to speak. But there wasn't any walls, right? Because this was before anything was ever created. And in giving us this insight, we will see then the the role that each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, plays in our salvation. Namely, God the Father has blessed you through election and adoption as sons and daughters. God the Son has blessed you through redemption and forgiveness. And God the Holy Spirit has blessed you by sealing you in Him to ensure that you will never fall away from the love of God. If we embrace these truths, they are so incredibly uh, helpful and comforting to the Christian. Each person of the Godhead plays an astonishing and wonderful role in your salvation. The text gives us great insight, then, into the inner workings of the Godhead, and it shows us how they work together within the Godhead to bring this great salvation to every believer. Though we see these things dimly through a finite and sin-stained understanding. Does that make sense? And we'll see this, but, but there's... Something about us, the, the sin that, that dwells in us, that ha, that and our finite understanding that doesn't give us clear a completely clear picture. Now today we will study the doctrines of election and predestination. The doctrines of election and predestination. I have to say that these have been some of the more di- divisive doctrines in the church age. 
Yet we cannot afford to skip over them if we want to honor the Word of God. Here at Grace Bible Church, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I preached a series of sermons on the four pillars which support our philosophy of ministry. We believe we want to exalt God, we want to exposit Scripture, we want to equip the saints, and we want to evangelize the lost. Those are the four pillars that we are committed to that support our philosophy, our, our, our philosophy of ministry here at Grace Bible Church. First, at Grace Bible Church, we want to exalt Him in all that we do. In other words, we want to bring Him the glory. And believe me, as I've said, the Bible brings Him glory. Second, here at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to the exposition of Scripture. We believe that, that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. We find nourishment on every word that proceeds from His mouth. And we desire to go where the Scriptures take us. Therefore, with, a, with few exceptions, with a few exceptions, we preach verse by verse and book by book. We try not to simply follow theological systems, such as Calvinism versus Arminianism, covenant theology versus the dispensational theologies. These systems are man's attempt to better understand what God has said in His Word, and in that sense they can be incredibly helpful, but many times Christians put more trust in the system than they do in the Word of God. Now I find systematic theology, which is the study uh, of, of what the Bible teaches in each ten ma- of the ten major doctrines, I find it to be incredibly helpful. A good understanding of systematic theology will keep us within the boundaries of orthodoxy meaning that it'll keep us from being heretical. keeps me from saying the wrong things. When I first learned to drive, my dad would tell me to keep it between the ditches. Keep it between the ditches. Well, in other words, he wanted me to stay firmly on the road and not venture into the danger zone. Systematic theology keeps us between the the ditches, but we should never forget that right doctrine, and make sure you get this, that right doctrine is always derived from the Bible through what the Bible says, through biblical exegesis. Meaning that we take the Word of God and we derive the doctrine. It's not the other way around. We should never impose what we believe on the Bible. Even when when a doctrine is correct, we can't impose it on the text. It's the other way around. We let the text teach us. We let the text say what it's going to say. Now, we should also recognize this morning, and this is what I am building to, that there are times when there are tensions in the text of Scripture. For instance, who is responsible for sanctification? God or man? Well, the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches that it presents God as the one who sanctifies yet it also presents man as responsible for his own sanctification. So which is it? Again, it's both at the same time. My systematic theology professor in in seminary, Dr. Mook, said this. He exhorted this. He says, Do not try to solve the apparent opposite truths. Accept both. To do otherwise will result in denying one or the other or both. The result will be heresy. Simple as that. In other words, keep the tensions intact. They keep us from drifting into the ditch. 
as my dad would say. As I said this morning, we're studying the, the doctrines of election and predestination, which again can be very divisive and fraught with danger. But I believe that we must uphold the first two pillars of Grace Bible Church, the exaltation of God and the exposition of Scripture as we carefully navigate what God has for us this morning in His Scriptures. We must allow the Scripture then to yield its treasures while understanding that we will encounter difficult truths which we need to approach with humility. I hope you're with me with that. I hope you're with me with all of that understanding. And in doing this, we, I believe that God will bless it. Now, as I've said, as we have said, last week we studied verse 3, which sums up our sermon series in verses 3 through 14. Now, let's look at the first point. Now, we saw that we see that God, or Paul wants his readers to comprehend the full breadth and depth of the threefold blessing of, of believers through the triune God. Now, that was last week. That's what we learned last week. Let's look at the first point. Let's look at how God has blessed you. Specifically, this morning, we're going to look at how God the Father has blessed you. First, He's blessed you by choosing you. He's blessed you by choosing you. Now, it's interesting that this morning, on Father's Day, we're going to be looking at the Heavenly Father and His role in our salvation. And I pray that it'll, be, that it'll bring you to worship of Him as we study this. Now, in Ephesians 1.4, Paul writes, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, the, the Greek conjunction that Paul uses here, which is translated just as in the NASB, and some of you may have the ESB, it says, even as, can give the manner or the cause by which God has saved us. In other words, God has saved us by the work of the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the rest of verses 4 through 14. Therefore, the spiritual blessings that we received that Paul spoke about in verse 3, the spiritual blessings that we get at salvation that we receive are the election of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the seal of the Holy Spirit. This means that the work the work of the three persons of the Trinity is the basis, the basis of every spiritual blessing stated in verse 3. Now, as uh, the commentator, Harold Horner, states, this means, and I quote, this means that the election of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the seal of the Holy Spirit are themselves spiritual benefits as well as being the basis for every spiritual benefit they themselves are the spiritual benefit but also the basis for every spiritual benefit point is beloved when it comes to salvation god gets all of the glory and we exalt him for it we believe that the bible teaches then that salvation is solely an act of god in other words he does all the work now look at the text. And I, I, I say look at the text. I want, you to, I want you to be firmly planted in the text. It says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. I believe that, that here He has God the Father in mind as He writes this statement. And this lines up with other Scripture. In John 6, 44, Jesus exclaims this. He says this, No one 
This is John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he says again in John 6, 65, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So it seems then, from what Scripture is saying, to be the ministry of the Father to in salvation to mark out those who will be saved. In this case, in this case, Paul writes that God the Father chose us. The Greek word translated chose here simply means, quite simply means to choose or select. And God is the subject, therefore He is the one doing the choosing. And He does not choose in a vacuum. He is all-knowing. Another way to say that is omniscient. Therefore He knows all the options when He chose us from the whole of human race the human race. This word not only speaks, let them say it a different way, this word and this phrase speaks only of those who are chosen. It does not speak of those who are not. And that's important for us to understand. The Bible teaches that every person is guilty before God unless God graciously saves him, graciously chooses to save him. In Romans 3, 9, in Romans 3.9, Paul states that both Jews and Greeks are all under the dominion of sin. They are enslaved to sin. In Romans 3.10, he says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And we all, many of us have heard, most of us heard, have heard Romans 3.23. It states this, For all, for all have sinned. Now, is that... Most? Is that some? No, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice it says fall short, as in we currently fall short of the glory of God. So every person is under the condemnation of God because of sin, but He has graciously chosen to save whom He will for His glory. Now, Admittedly, as I preach this, it is a difficult doctrine. It is a difficult doctrine. If I weren't committed to the exposition of Scripture, I would, be, I would find it very easy just to skip right over this and move right on and just say something about this and move on. But I can't because I know that this is what the Bible clearly teaches. But you should be encouraged as His people, Right? This is meant to be a praise to God and an encouragement for God's people. You should be encouraged that God has chosen you even though you did nothing to deserve it. Now the language and the grammar here indicate that he did this with great personal interest. He chose you to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. Now we must be very specific here. Paul says that he chose us. Paul's audience in this letter is the, are, is the saints at Ephesus. Are the saints at Ephesus. He, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Specifically, he's speaking to the faithful believers in Ephesus who are in union with Christ. But by extension, by extension, because of his greater intention that this letter be used to encourage all the churches, Paul is talking to all the faithful believers who are in Christ. This connection, this connection, 
then can be seen by the fact that Paul carefully states that we were chosen in Him, in Him, that is, in Christ. So the truths that Paul teaches here can be applied to all those who are in Christ. Now I want you to think through something with me. God's purpose for the body, the church, is that it would manifest the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. We are, as His body, to manifest Christ to the world. Let me say it another way. We are Christ to this fallen world. And that's the reason we are said to be in Christ. We are given spiritual gifts for this very purpose. That's the reason we are called to use those gifts as the body. And we're called to fellowship and to love one another and to pray for one another. It is God who put us into this body. It's God who did this sovereignly. That's why in Acts 2, Luke made the point to the, made the, made it a point to say to the early church, about the early church, that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So God has chosen us and He has put us in the body of Christ for His own purpose. And as individuals, we carry that mantle for good and for the bad, whether good or bad. Paul goes on to say that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now this is a very important phrase because I believe it clearly helps us understand not only when God chose us, but the manner by which he did so. So we must recognize, because he did it before the foundation of the world, that it is God's master plan which began before the world began, before time began, before creation, before God said, let there be light, before He created man and woman, before He created you and me, before He created anything in His free, independent, sovereign will, God set His grand plan in motion and He formed the body of Christ in eternity past. This truth was incredible to Paul. And it should be incredible to you. God has designed this entire thing before the world began, and we get to be part of it, and we should stand in awe at what God has done and is doing. And even more so, you should be in awe that God has included you in His plan, and He did this before the world began. Listen to John MacArthur. He says this, I know how I feel when I know someone loves me. But to imagine that the eternal God of the universe designed me into a plan before time began is an overwhelming thought. A plan that would ultimately culminate in me living with Him in His house forever. End quote. Now I want us to consider the timing of what God has done and consider that what the timing means. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Before, as I've said before, we were created. You and I had no opportunity to do anything, whether good or bad. We had not been created. We had and had, had and have no, at the time, had no legal claim on God to do one thing or the other. God had no obligation to choose you or to choose you other than the good, His good pleasure and for His own benefit and His glory. Therefore, Therefore, let me ask you this, do you believe in grace? And I'm sure if you're sitting here, 
You do. You believe that God saves by His grace, right? Therefore, His act of choosing is one of complete grace. One of complete grace. Because you had not done one thing one way or the other. It was not of works, so that no man may boast. He didn't owe you anything. Do you realize that if any work saves you, including your choice of Him, then He would be obligated to you? He has no obligation. He would be obligated to your choice. But because He saves before the foundation of the world, because He chooses before the foundation of the world, He has no obligation. And I want you to know this too. The elective purposes of God are not speculative. And that God didn't look forward in time to see who would deserve salvation because that would make Him obligated again to you. God is not obligated to you. We preach and we preach the God of the Bible who is sovereign over all things, including your salvation. This fits perfectly with Romans 3, 10, and 11, as we've, we've wrote or read earlier. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who deserves, who understands that is. There's none who seeks for God. You don't seek for God. He sought for you. And all this had to happen before the foundation of the world so that we would not boast. Anything else would not be a free and undeserved gift of grace. And, I'm, and again, I'm certain that many of you, and I have as well at times, struggled with this doctrine, but it is true nonetheless. We can't explain it away. If you are believing in Christ today, it's because He chose for you to believe. In John 10, 26, it, He says, but you do not believe because you are not My sheep. If you're My sheep, you'll believe, right? God's... By God's sovereign will, by His sovereign decree, He freely chose those who would believe, who would believe, who were to be in Christ. He did not confer with anyone outside the Trinity. He set forth His plan and He made His decision purely based on His sovereign will. If you look at the end of verse five, what does it say? According to the kind intention of His will. You look at the end of verse 9, it says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention. Look down in verse 11, it says, We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. Beloved, I hope, I know I've hammered this, (laughs) I hope that you understand that God freely, independently, unaffected by any human work or any human choice, chose us to be included in the body of Christ. A man, an old dead guy by the name of Horatius Bonar said this, I'm amazed that anyone who believes in God should stumble at God's sovereignty and election. For there is a God, a King, eternal, immortal, invisible, and almighty. He has to be, let me say, let me, let me change that because it, I missed a word, that's very important. For if there is a God, a King, eternal, immortal, invisible, and almighty, He has to be sovereign. And He must do all things according to His will, and He must choose according to His purpose. Whom shall He consult? With whom shall He seek counsel and advice? One may dislike these doctrines, 
but you cannot rid, get rid of them without denying altogether the existence of the infinite, wise, glorious God of heaven and earth. God would not be God were not, He not absolutely sovereign in His eternal prearrangements and His present doings, end quote. But this does not nullify God's call to man to come or man's obligation to answer that call in belief. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Beloved, the issue is belief. We are called to believe. We are called clearly by God to believe in Him. Revelation 22.17, we're also called to come to Him. Listen to this. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. John 7.37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John 7, 38, If he believes in me, as Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Beloved, you are called to believe. You are called to believe. But in God's sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, He chooses. That's a tension, isn't it? So difficulty. But I stand with my professor that I mentioned earlier not to, to solve the apparent opposite truths. To accept both. Because Scripture clearly teaches both. We must humbly submit to the tension and remember that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. Isaiah says that his ways are higher than our ways. We must, we must rest in that. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, believe me, you are accountable for your sin. You can't say, God didn't choose me. You are accountable, you are responsible to believe in the Lord Jesus and believe in His atoning work on the cross because that is the only way a man can be saved. Now let me give you some some blessings of this doctrine and and the tension, the blessings of the tension of the text. There's both, right? Let me give you one. Your salvation should remind you of the graciousness of God's choice. Your salvation should remind you of the graciousness of God's choice. He saved you before you could do anything to affect it. Therefore, it is absolutely a free gift. It's absolutely a free gift. Paul emphasizes this truth in Ephesians 2.8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Secondly, this should drive your evangelism. It's funny that I would say that, right? I'm saying that God, this is a free gift. God chooses. But it should drive your evangelism because you know that God calls people to Himself. He has graciously chosen people to come to Him. No one knows the elect. 
We don't walk around with an E stamped to, their, to our forehead. We don't, nobody knows who they are. We are not God, nor should we act as though we are. He has chosen to use us to evangelize through the preaching of the gospel. Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So our job then is to preach the message of the gospel and let God be God. Let Him do the rest. By the way, this should change your strategy. You know, we in our finite ways of doing things, we tend to share the gospel with those who we believe would make good Christians, right? The ones that are easy. The ones that are easy to talk to or we might you know, think it would be good if they come to the church if they become Christians. But God can save anyone He chooses. And as such, from our perspective, no one is out of the reach of God. No one. No one. As John or John says, or Jesus actually says in John 3, John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit moves where the Spirit moves. We don't have any choice in that. Nor should we. Nor should we. Listen to Spurgeon. I do not come into this pulpit hoping that perhaps someone will of his own free will return to Christ. My hope lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold of some of them and say, You are mine, and you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. My hope arises from the freeness of grace and not from the freedom of the will. Now listen to this. I believe this with all my heart. Free will carried many a soul to hell, but never a soul to heaven. You know why that's true? So, our, so our, we're in bondage to sin. We are in our free will. It's in bondage to sin. We can't freely choose God. We can't freely choose. We, we are not free to choose righteousness. It's only because God changes us so that we might live in righteousness, right, righteousness, and walk according. His ways should have a profound effect on your prayer life as well. God uses prayers to accomplish your prayer, our prayer, to accomplish His purpose. James writes, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We know that God is the one who saves, yet our evangelism is not dependent upon our ability to communicate the gospel. Do you get that? We know that God saves through the gospel through us presenting the gospel, but he's not dependent on that. But on the he's dependent. The the what what saves a man and woman is the spirit of God moving in their hearts. It's God saving them. The question is: Have you prayed diligently for the lost? Have you diligently prayed for the salvation of your children? Have you begged the Lord for their salvation? Have you begged the Lord for the salvation of your coworkers, for your lost neighbors? God listens to your prayer. I don't get it. 
That's that tension, right? The tension that I'm talking about. The tension of, of God using your prayer, yet He's completely sovereign. I don't understand it. I just believe it. Because it's what the Word says. He desires for us to depend on Him in prayer. Even prayer for the lost. This should also lower your stress and improve your sleep. God has everything sovereignly under control. I lose lose sleep over my children. But I shouldn't, right? Because He sovereignly saves I need to share the gospel with them. I need to love them. I need to be faithful. But I need to, lo- I need to rest in His sovereignty that if He's going to save, He's going to save. We're called to preach the gospel, sow the seed, and pray for the lost, and let God do the rest in His sovereign will. I mean, that's, that's freeing. That's freeing. Just like the farmer who sows the seed and waits for God to bring forth the produce, we are to sow the seed of the gospel and pray waiting for God to bring forth the produce of His harvest. Brethren, I firmly believe that God elects His people to salvation, and therefore I can preach the gospel and sleep soundly at night, knowing that God will do what He decides to do, or has decided, that is, to do in His sovereign decree. Now, let me just say one last thing about this before we move on. You hear some preachers preach this doctrine of election as if it's the only doctrine in the Bible. And some won't touch it with a ten-foot pole because they know of the divisive nature of it. But I largely agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. He says this, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in election and predestination, but I would not dream of putting it under the heading of essential. I put it under the heading of non-essential. You are not saved by your precise understanding of how great this great salvation comes to you. What you must be clear about is that you are lost and damned, hopeless and helpless, and that nothing can save you but the grace of God in Jesus Christ and only Him crucified, bearing your punishment the punishment of your sins, dying, rising again, ascending, sending the Spirit, and regeneration. Those are the essentials. End quote. Those are the essentials. Let's look at the second point quickly. God the Father has blessed you by cleansing you. If you're looking at your watch, this point goes quickly. It says that we would be holy and blameless before Him. This is really a restatement of verse 1 where Paul calls them to be saints. This parallels with God's choice of Israel as His people. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses says this in 7.6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were fewer or fewest of all peoples. Israel had not done anything which caused God to choose them, but God chose them out of all the people who were on the face of the earth to be a holy people, a people for God's own possession. He did that for His glory. He did that by His own sovereign choice. Peter picks up on that imagery and idea in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. In Leviticus 19.18, again Moses writes, Speak to all the congregations of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, Peter picks up on this idea and applies it to the church. He says this in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours by or in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Then he says this, quoting Leviticus 19.18, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul says then that we are to be holy, or that we are holy and blameless before Him. Now I think, I'm sure, I'm certain, that there's a practical aspect that Paul will bring out later in the letter, in chapters 4-6. through He will call the Ephesians to walk according to the glorious salvation they've been given in Christ. He says that in Ephesians 4.1. He implores them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called. But I don't think here in Ephesians 1, that is Paul's primary focus. Again, the practical holiness of walking before Him in holiness. I believe that Paul is emphasizing our position before Him as holy and blameless. Does that make sense? The difference is is one is practical, one is how we live our lives. I think here he's saying that we have been given a position as holy and blameless. This is a position that God has accomplished at at our salvation. He has chosen us, He has made us a people for His own possession that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He has accomplished this in the work of the Lord Jesus and in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We did nothing to accomplish this. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have accomplished this for us. Third point. God the Father has blessed you by co-opting you. Now, I had to stick with the C's, so I'm meaning adopting here. If we look at the text in Ephesians 1.5, it says, In love, in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, I told my wife last night, I feel bad in one sense because... I think you might want to lynch me if I stopped in verse 4 and didn't go any further. So we're going to, we're going to make it through verse 6. But we're going to probably feel like it's, we're waving as 5 and 6 as we go by. But I think we're going to get what he wants us to get out of it. This is the result of all this. In love, he has predestined us as sons. All that God has done for us, he has been done in love. Later in chapter 2 he says, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. God loves us and He made us to be sons and daughters and it could happen no other way. He predestined this to happen from the foundation of the world. If you are a Christian, then He ordered your life in such a way to make everything work toward making you holy and blameless before Him in love. I was just thinking about my own life yesterday. I moved to Florida in 1996, leaving everything that I knew in Arkansas. I had a small 
U-Haul trailer and a truck. I was alone in the world, yet God knew what He was doing with me. He brought me here. He gave me a wife. He gave me a son. He sent me to Nevada to hear the gospel, then to South Carolina to continue the process of training. Then He sent me to California to continue my training, then back to Florida to help plant this church. He gave me the parents that He wanted me to have. He gave me the wife that I needed, and He gave me a family. And along the way, He placed me in perfect situations to prepare me for His use. And I'm certain that many of you have the same type of story. Everything in your life lines up perfectly. This is the idea of predestination, and it's not by chance. It's what God has done and what God has placed in your life. Not only did He... Not not only did He choose you, but He perfectly aligned everything in your life so that you would come to Him. Beloved, there are no mistakes with God. He wastes no motions. I remember when I was trying to discern God's will and going to seminary that I told my wife, and she I've said it over and over, she laughs about it, I can't believe that God would take us from Nevada to South Carolina just to take us to Southern California. If you get the geography of that, it's bouncing across. And I could actually add now, he took us from Nevada to South Carolina to Southern California and back to Florida. Actually, it was Florida to Nevada to South Carolina to California, back to Florida. But in none of those miles was there anything wasted. Every bit of it had a purpose in God. That's what he's done. Let me just say, let me draw some similarities real quick. That's similar to what he did with a man named Moses, right? I'm not Moses. He sent Moses from the courts of Egypt to the wilderness, back to Egypt, back to the wilderness, then to the precipice of the promised land, all according to the pleasure of whose will? God's will, right? Right? That's what he did with Paul. He took Paul across the known world. If you if you want to if you want to talk about a wilderness journey, read Acts 16, where Paul was. I mean, you you had to you had to Acts 16. He covers I, no telling how many miles on foot, trying to figure out where God wanted him to go. The Spirit of Christ, that is. But he used him to build the church, build his church amongst the Gentiles. It's what he did with the rest of his disciples. Listen to John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Whose fruit is it? It's the disciples. Is it? It's God's fruit too, right? He's the one who bore the fruit in them. He's the one that appointed them. He's the one that chose them. He's the one that put them where he wanted them to be. Why did he do all this? According to Paul, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. You wouldn't believe how much is packed in this statement. Probably three sermons if I wanted it to be. Actually, I want it to be, but I know better. But the main thing I want to see is that he showed us his grace for his glory. And you can't see it in the English text. But the text literally says, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graced upon us in the Beloved. Grace that He graced upon us. It's grace gifted. You might ask why He saved us by His grace. Why did He give us this free gift of salvation? 
He did it for His glory. He did it so that we would be worshipers for eternity. See, we think, and we think, guys, we think in finite terms, right? That's our problem. We're finite. We're not infinite. God is thinking in terms of eternity, in terms of the infinite. Who are we to question God? That's what He says in Romans, right? Who are we to question our Maker? He did it so that we would be worshipers for eternity. And I'm convinced that we don't completely understand what God has done, but if we understood the depth of our depravity, the depth of our sinfulness, then we might better understand what God has done for us and the Beloved that is in Christ. And next week, we will see the full force of what God has accomplished in for us in Christ. But for now, let me let Charles Haddon Spurger, Spurgeon that is, end our time. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I'm sure that He has chosen me before I was born, or else... He never would have chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. End quote. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning and praise You. I know, Lord, that this can be a divisive doctrine. People can struggle with it. But Lord, I pray that it would be that, that we would praise you for what you've done in choosing your people. I pray that it would come, we would come to worship you. Lord, you are good. And as I join Spurgeon in saying, there's nothing good in me. There's no reason why. The, the question shouldn't be, why did you? The question should, shouldn't be, why did you choose? But why did you choose me? It must have been from the foundation of the world. I pray, Lord, that we would as a church, we would just exalt you. And we would hold high your word. And we would preach it and proclaim it. And proclaim your gospel, Lord, to all that need to hear it. To every man and woman, child who come across our path. In Jesus' name, amen.